0: Welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for April 8th to 14th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. Then we'll have our future interview with Professor Stanley Finger on the life of Paul Broca and his most famous patient, Tan. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. For April 9th. In 1810, Pierre Laplace presented the Central Limit Theorem to the French Academy of Sciences. The theorem is the basis for drawing inferences about the characteristics of populations from sample data and forms the cornerstone of modern inferential statistics. For April 10th. In 1928, in a letter to Carl Murchison, Edwin G. Boring proposed the series History of Psychology and Autobiography. The first volume in the series was published on August 23, 1930. For April 11th, in 1966, William Masters and Virginia Johnson's book, Human Sexual Response, was published. Masters and Johnson's research attracted widespread popular attention and had important effects on the practice of psychological counseling. For April 12th, in 1967, the antipsychotic drug, haloperidol, better known under the trade name Haldol, was approved for use by the US Food and Drug Administration. Haloperidol was the first of the butyrophenone series of major tranquilizers that came to be widely used in institutional settings. Also on April 12th in 1968, Fred Keller's article, Goodbye Teacher, was published in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. The article described the application of behavior principles to instruction. And finally, for April 14th, in 1813, the first private psychiatric hospital in the United States was founded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The hospital was administered by the Religious Society of Friends, or Quakers. On April 11th, 1861, a patient who could speak few words, apart from repeatedly calling out Tan, was admitted to the surgical ward of the Bissette Hospital in Paris. The surgeon on duty, Paul Broca, immediately recognized that the condition of this patient's brain might resolve long-standing questions about what part of the brain is responsible for controlling speech. Within days, the patient whose name was LeBourg would die, and Broca would discover an area of the man's frontal lobe that was badly damaged. Soon this region came to be known as Broca's area, and is one of the first firm localizations of psychological function in the human brain in history. On the phone to talk to us about Broca's career is Dr. Stanley Finger of Washington University in St. Louis. Professor Finger is the author of The Origins of Neuroscience, published by Oxford in 1994, and he is the co-editor of the Journal of the History of the Neurosciences, published by Taylor and Francis. Professor Finger, although Broca's name is known today mainly for the area of the brain named after him, that was only a highlight of a quite variegated career. Could you please first tell us a bit about his background and his education?
1: Uh Paul Broca was born to a Protestant family uh in a small town near Bordeaux uh in 1824. His father was an army surgeon, so there was medicine in Broca's family, and Broca himself studied medicine in Paris, receiving his medical degree in 1848. He had a particular outlook on medicine that separated him from a number of other people uh even in Paris and made him very famous. He believed that laboratory and clinic must come together uh in order to uh improve medicine. He first made a name for himself showing that cancer cells can spread to the blood and with discoveries about rickets and muscular dystrophy and other disorders which really don't have a lot to do with uh neurology or with psychology. He was able to secure an appointment at the Becetra, uh where which is where he would do his famous work on speech and the brain. At the time of his death he had over five hundred papers Uh, in neurology, neuroanatomy, comparative anatomy, human evolution, and diversity of the human race, pathology,
0: statistics, cancer, therapeutics, you name it. Well, I guess he's best known for the work that he did with the the patient nicknamed Tan, from which he was able to determine the location in the brain where speech is processed. Uh, Could you tell us the story of that discovery?
1: At least... For people in psychology and neurology, he probably is best known for his work on tan. In the field of physical anthropology, though, he probably is, is at least as well known for his work on cranial trepanation. The case of tan dates back to 1861. Broca had founded a new anthropological society in Paris, and at the anthropological society, people were debating whether intellect had anything to do with the overall size of the brain if not the overall size, maybe how the different parts of the brain functioned as a whole, or a new idea, which was really beginning to gain in in currency, that maybe it's just one part of the brain, in particular the front of the brain, which seems so highly developed in humans, that that would be the uh, basis of intellect. Prior to Broca, starting in 1824, a man by the name of B. Bouillot, and then his son-in-law, Albertine, Uh, started citing cases of brain damage uh, that would affect speech. And they were pretty convinced that speech had something to do with what they called the anterior lobes of the brain. Mm -hmm. These days, everybody talks about the frontal lobes. But back then, the anterior lobes included the frontal lobes and some of the parietal lobe. Mm-hmm. But they were convinced the anterior lobes were special. And they not only collected data on brain-damaged people, there were, there were cases, uh, in particular a case in the hospital Saint-Louis, where a man had part of his skull uh, taken off, blown off, actually, in a suicide attempt. And Aubertine showed that by touching the front part of his brain, he was able to stop the man's speech in mid-sentence without producing unconsciousness. But there was one major problem. And that, that was? for many people, this smacked the phrenology. Broca himself was pretty convinced that Bouillot and Aubertine had it right. Well, it was at this time in 1861 that a 51-year-old man, Monsieur Le was uh, on Broca's surgical ward in the Bicetra. This man had diffuse cellulitis. He had gangrene in his paralyzed right right leg. And the issue was should they amputate the leg to perhaps prolong the man's life. Broca looked at him and realized this man was going to die very shortly anyhow and did not perform the operation. But he thought it would make a very, very good test of the Bouillot or Bertin idea that speech, the loss of speech, would have something to do with the frontal lobes. Monsieur LeBron was able to utter only a few very, very small words, we, known, and a word that sounded like tan. And in fact, some people started to call this patient Tan uh, after uh, the case was presented. Well, within a week after Broca evaluated him, and he brought Aubertine along to evaluate him uh, together, Tan or Monsieur Leborn, whichever you prefer, uh, did die. And the brain was removed, and there was, as Broca described, it, chronic and progressive softening in the third frontal convolution of the left hemisphere. And this confirmed the thoughts of Bouillot and Aubertin. and it was also a very important location because it differed from where the phrenologists were locating speech in the front of the brain. The phrenologists were looking behind the orbit of the eye. Well, this was much more to the side it turns out pollution was on the left side but left versus right meant nothing to broca at this moment in time so what did broca do first he issued a uh, very short report to the anthropological society of paris and then later in 1861 as promised he came out with a much more detailed study and uh, that was uh, presented to the anatomical society and this case became the case and it became the case for a number of reasons One is that Broca was not arguing that all of the frontal uh, areas, all of the anterior areas were important, just one part of the anterior cortex. Secondly, he was not talking about all types of speech defects. He was talking specifically about a loss of fluent speech. Third, the zeitgeist had changed. And by 1861, phrenology was not quite the threat that it it had been in the past. But finally, and, and this is really critical, it was Broca who took a stand. Broca had a great reputation, and lucky for him, he had a second case, an old man, who also seemed to show this, what we would today call Broca's aphasia, or what was then called aphemia, and the second case appeared at the end of 1861, an old fellow who appeared to uh, fall down a flight of stairs, and uh, but the lesion appeared to be more or less in the same area, and by 1863, Broca is telling his friends at the Anthropological Society that he's absolutely shocked to discover that in all of the cases that he's seen, I think he had six or seven cases by that time, the lesion was always on the left side of the brain. And two years later, in 1865, he published the monumental paper uh, in which he discussed the left side as being special for speech in
0: most people. Now, as you mentioned, Broca also became the leading physical anthropologist in France, uh, founding the Anthropological Society in 1859, and the uh, journal Revue d'Anthropologie in 1872, and the anthropology department at the University of Paris in 1876. Um, What did the term anthropology mean to him and his colleagues, and what contributions did he make to that field?
1: Right. Broca's anthropology was a combination of both physical and social anthropology. He was interested in structure, uh, that is the bones and the uh, the parts of the body and how they might be evolving, and he was very much interested in evolution. Uh, he was also interested in in culture. Um, he was interested in a skull that had been shown uh, recently at his anthropological society by Le. It was a skull from uh, a native quote unquote Indian from Mexico. Uh, it was an enormous skull. He was interested in bass skulls, which were also bigger than his own and the typical a uh, skull of a Parisian, and he was interested in some Neanderthal skulls, which also appeared to be bigger. So, from an anthropological perspective, he wanted to know, were these people actually smarter because their brains were bigger? and on closer inspection, we found or he concluded that the Mexican, the bas skulls, the Neanderthal uh, skulls all seemed to show more growth in the back of the brain, which was not intellectual, and indeed, even though their brains were larger in size, uh, it did not mean that they were the, in a higher state of evolution or smarter than the typical Frenchman in Paris. Rather, it's the front of the brain which was important, and he felt that the, uh, the Frenchman in Paris probably had more in front, uh, even if the Neanderthals, the Basques, and the uh, Native Mexicans had more in the back. Hmm. Uh, so naturally, this man Broca uh, was very interested in ancient skulls. And in particular, anything related to those skulls, such as he noticed that some of these skulls had openings in them. Well, this would be suggestive of skull surgery and perhaps brain surgery. So this really fascinated him. Skulls showing these openings, which are called trepanation openings, had been found in Europe since the 1600s. The problem was nobody recognized those skulls as being old. They thought they were relatively new and therefore not so interesting most people thought the holes were made after the time of death which would make them even less interesting and the general belief was they were due to animals or natural forces such as water running through the earth what changed everything was actually an american uh man by the name of squire who was interested in archaeology and anthropology and he was sent by abraham lincoln to peru in 1863 to settle a border argument uh, he decided to go around Peru and write a book about the people and the climate and the culture and the history. Well, he winds up in Cusco, and there at a lady's house, she showed him an Inca skull, probably from about no later than 1500 of the current era. And this skull had an opening in it, but it was an opening that could only have been made by human hands. It had a cross-patch opening, looked like a tic-tac-toe board, if you will, and it could only be done by hands. And in addition, Squire was convinced that he had seen some bone regrowth and some changes which indicated that this opening had been made before the man had died. Squire decides the only way to really get a good opinion on this thing is to send it to the leading anthropologists in the world. So he packs up the skull and he sends it to Paul Broca in Paris. Broca writes to report in 1867, And Broca and his friends conclude that the individual was in fact operated upon about one to two weeks before he died. Broca then speculates that the opening was probably made to treat some sort of a head injury, which left pressure on the brain, perhaps from the buildup of blood underneath. And Broca says that the brain was associated with behavior in ancient Peru, and this sent the medical world absolutely on its head. Well, heck, if, if people like this Inca were being subjected to such a surgery in the New World, maybe they were doing the same sorts of surgery even earlier in the Old World. And in particular, for the ethnocentric uh, Broca, the hope was maybe they would find that the surgery began in a place like France. Well, it turns out by 1868, some of Broca's friends are coming back to Paris with pieces of Neolithic skulls showing openings. Within a few years, hundreds of pieces of trepaned skulls, and even a complete skull, uh, had been found by Broca and his friends. And indeed, Broca was out there hunting with the skull hunters and did make some interesting findings. This also led them to look at those earlier skulls that had been found and to reinterpret the findings. They concluded the skulls were opened by scraping them with sharp rocks such as flint or obsidian. Survival clearly occurred. There was a lot of healing shown on many of the skulls and they thought this had to do with leaving the meninges intact. What he didn't find was any evidence of fractures and he also noticed that the face region was always avoided when the holes were made. He made one other important observation. Both genders were involved both male and female skulls seem to have these openings. So he now had to figure out what was going on. The fact that the face region was always avoided, that both genders were involved and no fractures, well, this sort of took away the idea that these were head injuries from battle, uh, or in general, head injuries. He thought instead it had to reflect some sort of an internal disease. He eventually came to the conclusion that The openings were made in children, Uh, children who had um, seizure disorders. He didn't think it was true epilepsy because epilepsy rarely occurs before age 10. But he thought of the kind of seizures you might have with a high fever or with teething or what physicians today would call benign idiopathic seizures. The nice thing about these seizures is you would have them. Generally, they would disappear on their own and not come back. And you'd have the feeling of success if you tried some sort of an intervention. And to Broca, that was was most of the story. The only other thing that he had to add is that primitive people believed in demons, and they probably were working on children who had seizure disorders, and they were making the holes in the skull to let the demons out, the demons being associated with these seizures. Okay, so here's what you have then. Let's make an opening and in some way then coax or force the demons to leave an opening which they couldn't possibly miss, they would go out and the child would get better. He published extensively on this during the 1870s, which is really interesting because he only published a handful of papers on speech and language. So really, I think what we can conclude is that the trepanation interested Broca much more even than his work on language and the brain.
0: People who have read Stephen Jay Gould's book, The Mismeasure of Man, will probably remember Broca mainly for being an advocate of craniometry, the practice of measuring the size of skulls in order to assess intelligence. And and this practice was adopted especially by those who wanted to claim that there were natural differences in the intelligence among various races. Um, what was Broca's role in that debate?
1: Broca was certainly interested in craniometry, but here I have to re- remind uh, people interested in the subject that so was everybody uh, in the uh, latter part of the 1800s. Broca was particularly interesting. He started off thinking overall skull size would be very important. And indeed, there's there's some history here. Uh, In fact, a rather deep history, and I think I could summarize it in one very short statement. If we look back at early documents where people measured skull size, I mean documents that go back way back, in time. The general conclusion is that a large skull may not be indicative of genius, but very small skulls are usually associated with cognitive uh, defects, mental problems, and so on and so forth, perhaps because the small skulls are the result of malnutrition to the mother or to the child early in life, and there could be other reasons as well. In fact, Broca eventually came to the conclusion that large skulls were not necessarily associated with smart people. Indeed, we mentioned that he found large skulls in Neanderthals, who have a larger cranial capacity than modern man, large skulls in the Basques, and he had skulls from a Basque cemetery shipped uh, from the south of France to Paris, where he examined them very carefully, and uh, also that extremely large skull that uh, Gratiolet sent him or brought to the Anthropological Society, uh, from uh, Mexico, here were large skulls, but the people didn't appear to be necessarily that advanced in Broca's mind. His work on language convinced him absolutely, and, and not just language, but also studying species and the development of the brain, uh, that the frontal lobes uh, or the anterior lobes were much more important than overall brain size. So, yeah, he was a craniometrist. He was interested in measuring skulls much like Benet and Galton in his own time period, uh, and also very much like Franz Gaul before him. But he had now a more neurologically oriented reason for looking at one part and considering it more important than other part.
0: So why do you think then that psychologists and uh, neuroscientists should remember Broca today?
1: Well, we should certainly
0: remember his contributions
1: to language. In, in the localization revolution, the idea that different parts of the roof of the brain are responsible for different functions. Broca was not the first to have that idea, but he came forth with a case and he supported it in a way that attracted a lot of attention to it, got a lot of fence sitters to come off the fence and to accept the idea that not all parts of the cerebral cortex are equal, that different parts are specialized for different areas. I think that's extremely important. The idea of understanding prehistory by looking at skulls and looking at what people were doing to skulls, the openings in skulls, Uh, Brooke was also a pioneer in in that field, in this physical anthropology and the study of of cranial trepanation Uh, made major contributions, even if his overall theory was a little bit off-base with his emphasis on children. Brooke is also interesting to people in psychology and neurology because he believed in recovery of function. He thought that under certain circumstances, the right side of the brain might be able to take over for a damaged left hemisphere he also is smart enough to realize that if the brain damage occurred early enough in life the right hemisphere might become the speech side uh, of the brain so he opens up a number of vistas there for people who are interested in therapy and recovery of function and other topics which are particularly interesting to people in the field of neuropsychology another contribution of Broca one which very few people seem to realize Paul Broca was the first person to actually perform a brain surgery based on cortical localization of function prior to this time when there were tumors or abscesses people had a guess you know where do you go in if something's wrong and do they even dare go in given the prob- the probabilities of complications and infections and things like that following surgery Well, once Broca localized the speech area in that third convolution on the left side of the brain, uh, he had a tool for figuring out where to go in if a person showed problems with fluent speech. And in fact, he knew exactly where this area was because he developed a technique called cranial cerebral topography. He took skulls of people who had died. Uh, He then put pegs, he drilled holes and he put pegs in the skulls And the pegs marked, they pressed into certain brain areas, and they marked out, uh, like on a grid, where the different brain areas would be under different skull landmarks. And I'll mention just one more reason to remember Broca, and that is for his work on the limbic system. Uh, Today we associate the limbic system with emotion, uh, but in Broca's day it was associated with smell. And Broca wrote a number of papers, actually two very important papers, in which, and I'll quote from him, translating from French to English The mantle of the hemisphere is composed of one part that is brute, represented by the great limbic lobe, and another that is intelligent, represented by the rest. Broca associated the limbic lobe with smell, but also he kept the door open. He thought it might also have to do with primitive functions such as emotion and motivation, functions basic to survival, as opposed to intellectual functions.
0: Well, thank you very much for this today. We have been speaking with Professor Stanley Finger of Washington University in St. Louis about the life and career of Paul Broca. Professor Finger is the author of The Origin of Neuroscience, published by Oxford in 1994, and he is co-editor of the Journal of the History of the Neurosciences, which is published by Taylor & Francis. If you'd like to know more about Paul Broca, you can find some of the articles that Professor Finger mentioned on the Classics in the History of Psychology website. One of the aspects of Paul Broca's life that I did not get a chance to talk to Professor Finger about was Paul Broca's political activities. He was denounced by the church at one point who attempted to strike him from the electoral list as a free thinker and a materialist um, after he set up a society that was sympathetic to the evolutionary theories of Charles Darwin. Later in his life, however, he was given a lifetime membership to the French Senate. And now it's time for birthdays. First, for April 8th. In 1859, Edmund Husserl was born. Husserl popularized the term phenomenology and contended that the observation of subjective experience is essential to the understanding of being. Also for April 8th, in 1868, Herbert Spencer Jennings was born. Jennings was a comparative psychologist who focused on the behavior of lower organisms. For April 9th, in 1850, physician George S. Huntington was born. Huntington was the first to describe the syndrome of familial nervous degeneration now known as Huntington's disease or Huntington's chorea. For April 10th, in 1857, Lucien levy bruhl was born. levy bruhl was an anthropologist who pursued the study of mental processes in what he termed primitive humans, with the intent of demonstrating differences between civilized and primitive mentality. Next for April 11th, in 1755, James Parkinson was born. Parkinson was an English naturalist and medical doctor whose tract An essay on the Shaking Palsy in 1817 first described the neurological condition that bears his name for April 12th. In 1941, Alan Kent Mallion was born. Malion was the clinical psychologist who spearheaded the successful drive to remove homosexuality as a pathological condition from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders used by the American Psychiatric Association. April 13th, in 1911, Frank Beach was born. His area of interests were comparative psychology and sexual behavior. Beach's article, The Snark Was a Boojum in 1949, promoted the study of animals other than the rat in environments other than the laboratory for April 14th. In 1886, Edward C. Tolman was born. Tolman's purpose of behaviorism merged cognitive elements, such as expectations of reinforcement and cognitive maps, into behavioral learning theory. Tolman was president of the American Psychological Association in 1937. And also on April 14th, in 1925, Roger Brown was born. Brown is noted for his work in psycholinguistics and social psychology, as well as for an important longitudinal study of language development in three children. That's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop. That's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T W I T H O P at YorkU, Y O R K U dot C A. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University.